All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In this session, we come to a very well-known section of Ephesians, the Armor of God section in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and following. And this really is a wrap-up to everything he said before. This is like the, the kind of the grand finale of the letter. And Paul wraps up the letter with this rousing call to arms that we refer to very commonly as the armor of God because that is the framework by which Paul packages it here. Because this is the culmination of everything that Paul has said in the letter, we should be sure to let what Paul has said already earlier in the letter shed light on what he means by certain phrases or terms here. That would just help us make sure we realize, oh, I get where you're going with things. For example, like how truth is used earlier in the letter when he mentions the belt of truth, or how righteousness is used earlier in the letter when he talks about the breastplate of righteousness. We'll look at the details of those when we get to the details of the text. But just being sure that we recognize that uh, the way Paul has used those words earlier should be uh, really the way that we understand them here. And not only that, what Paul seems to be doing here is he seems to have taken imagery from the Old Testament, especially from Isaiah, about God or about the Messiah, God's king, being a warrior and clothed in armor. And then he's adapted that here with regard to us as God's people. For example... Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17 says, He, meaning God, we're in a passage describing God and God not seeing anyone to bring justice. So God himself is going to bring justice to the earth. And so Isaiah 59, 17 says, He, God, put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and he wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. There, God himself is the one wearing the breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation. And he's going to go into battle to bring peace and justice to the world. Or again, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5, this case describing uh, the root of Jesse. In other words, God's Messiah, who we know is Jesus, right? So Isaiah 11, verse 5 says, also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness will be the belt on his waist. And so here again, God's Messiah is girded up with uh, armor and he's going to go to battle. And so when Paul here in Ephesians chapter 6 says the armor of God, we should probably think of this in terms of God's armor. Like the armor of God means the armor that God himself has. So it's God's armor that he has now given to us as his people. He shares with us. However, in understanding it that way, we need to make sure we note the key difference between what the passages in Isaiah say about God wearing the armor and what Ephesians says. Um, the difference is this, that in Isaiah, the armor is used by God and the Messiah offensively. That is, it's used to go into battle, quote-unquote, to bring justice and peace to the world. Here in Ephesians 6, Paul tells us that we use the armor 
really to hold our ground. We're standing firm in the strength of his might. See, And so we're not going into battle. We're not taking new ground. We're not on the offensive like God and the Messiah are in Isaiah. We're holding our ground. And presumably that's because the Messiah, Jesus, has already won the decisive victory, as Paul has said earlier in Ephesians. And so we don't need to win any victory. We just need to hold ground. And so the question that is being dealt with here is this. How do we, as God's people, live out the victory that Jesus won and thus stand firm in our new identity in him? That's really the question that Paul is answering here. And he says we do that by putting on the armor of God. So here's what Paul says as we look at the details. Verse 10 really is like the header for the whole section, indicating this idea of just standing firm, being strong, uh, that we're holding our ground. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 reads, Finally, we're coming to the wrap-up of the letter, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And this really serves as like the header for the whole section. This is the main point of the armor of God. This is the way we're strong in the Lord. This is the way we stand firm in his strength. We're not, again, taking new ground. Jesus has already been victorious. He's already been exalted far above the rulers and authorities and powers, right? Our job in him is simply to stand firm to hold our ground, to not give up, to, to not be overwhelmed. Um, in fact, if you recall Paul's really beautiful prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, way back at the beginning of the letter, he wants us there, he says, to, to know. He's praying that we would know the surpassing greatness of God's power that's available to us. Well, here we're commanded to be strong in that power. How do we do this? How do we stand firm in God's mighty power? Well, Paul tells us that in verse 11. This is what Paul says in verse 11. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So the armor of God is how we stand firm. And as we noted in the introduction, this is God's own armor that he now shares with us. Paul will list off the pieces of the armor in a moment, and he'll do so in terms of a Roman soldier, because that's the everyday picture for him that he had in mind. Um, but here he just says, put on this armor, he'll describe it in a second, so that you'll be able to stand firm. That's how we stand firm. This armor allows us to stand firm against what he calls the schemes of the devil. Schemes speaks of strategies, all right? That's the idea of this word schemes. It's strategies. It's, you know, battle plans. It's game plans. It's the strategies of the devil. And it speaks of the devil being clever. He knows how to fight. He doesn't fight fair. And so if we're going to stand firm, we need to armor up in order to protect ourselves against his clever strategies that he uses to undermine us and to destroy us. Uh, why do we need God's mighty power and God's armor to stand firm? Well, what Paul is going to say here, beginning in verse 12, is we need that because the devil and his minions, the forces arrayed against us as God's people, they're powerful. And so we need to armor up so that we can stand firm because we're dealing with powerful beings, 
powerful forces that are arrayed against us. Look how Paul describes it beginning in verse 12. He says, for our struggle, that is our battle, our, our fight, our contest is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So that's who we're struggling against. Notice it's not against flesh and blood. Flesh and blood refers to the merely human, and thus the weaker and the more vulnerable like us. Like as powerful as human beings seem to be, compared to the forces arrayed against us, humans are quite weak and quite vulnerable. And that's really the point here. Flesh and blood uh, indicates vulnerability and weakness as compared to the rulers and the powers and the world forces of this darkness. And so if we were merely dealing with human foes, maybe we could handle it, right? But we're not, and we can't. The foes against us are spiritual beings, and we need God's power to hold our ground. And Paul uses several titles for these spiritual foes. He calls them rulers. He calls them the powers. He calls them the world forces of darkness. He refers to them as the spiritual. This translation implies forces, but it probably is even better to say beings. We're talking about spiritual beings, spiritual beings of wickedness. And we've already seen reference to these beings, these forces, these powers earlier in Ephesians. For example, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, it says that Jesus was exalted and seated in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and uh, dominion and every name that could be named. And so Jesus has won the great victory over them. He's exalted far above them, and as powerful as they are, and as intimidating as they seem, Jesus is so far supreme that he's looking down on them from way above them. Right? So we've seen that. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, another place where these rulers and powers show up. Ephesians 3.10 describes how God's wisdom is seen through the church, uh, and is made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. These are the same beings that Paul is talking about here in chapter 6. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, doesn't use the same language, but seems to speak of the same reality by referring to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so Paul has talked about these rulers and authorities and powers and beings of darkness elsewhere in the letter, and he said that Jesus has triumphed over them, the church is actually God's display of his wisdom to them, and that we no longer need to walk uh, according to their ways and according to their wishes, that we have new power to, to live differently. He also says here that these spiritual beings uh, act in the heavenly places, that they are the spiritual forces or spiritual beings of wickedness in the heavenly places. And we've seen that phrase before in Ephesians as well. We first saw that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, where every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then we saw it several places after that in the letter. Uh, it's where we experience those spiritual blessings. It's where Christ Jesus has been exalted and seated as king. It's where, according to chapter 2, we're actually seated with him as our king and as our Lord. It's also where here 
these spiritual beings operate. In other words, the heavenly places seems to refer to the unseen side of reality, that part of reality that is real, just as real as the seen part, but we just can't see it. And there Jesus has won the victory. There we enjoy that victory with him and we have a new identity in him. And there we we deal with spiritual beings that want to destroy God's purposes and God's plans in this world. And so they act in this unseen side of reality. Now, verse 13 then restates the main point of the whole section and then prepares us for the listing off of the armor and what follows and leads right into um, the listing off the armor. And so here now we've been told to stand firm against these uh, world forces of darkness. He tells us then in verse 13 to take up the full armor of God um, and so that, having taken up that armor, so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And that emphasis on standing firm is why I said we're not taking new ground. We're holding our ground. We're just, we've already uh, been ushered into the great victory that the King Jesus has won. We're just supposed to stand firm in him. So we take up the full armor of God so that we, we will be able to resist to be planted strong and, and stand firm against the evil one. And so we stand firm. We do that by taking up the full armor of God. And so beginning in verse 14, Paul then begins to list off the parts of the armor for us at, and helping us see what it looks like to take up the full armor of God. Let me read the full description of the armor, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about each of the parts. Here is the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so with that, he lifts off the armor of God that enables us to stand firm in Christ. Notice each of the parts here. Let's walk down through them. He says, having girded your loins with truth. Um, that's really language that's kind of archaic and old. We don't describe things that way. To gird um, is really to put like on a belt. And the ancient world, um, you know, they wore robes and sometimes girding would actually refer to like taking your uh, long robe and kind of folding it up and tucking it into the belt so you could get it above the knees so you could actually move more quickly. In the case of the Roman military, it actually just referred to belting on your, your waistband and belting on your gear. And so it was sort of this belt around the midsection that helped you hold, that helped hold your whole kind of armor together. So put that on, gird up your loins. You're putting a belt around your waist, in other words, and that belt is truth, the belt of truth. Um, Jesus describes the, the devil as a liar uh, in, the, in his teaching. 
Deception and falsehood and half-truths have been the devil's main strategy since Genesis chapter 3, since the very beginning. Half-truths, deception, falsehood, right? You see that even in the temptation of Jesus where the devil is tempting Jesus and he's using half-truths. He's using scripture kind of in a wrong sort of way and he's deceiving and he's twisting things. That's, that's the primary way the devil operates. That's one of his main strategies. So in order to stand firm against his clever strategies, we must be rooted in, grounded in the truth. We must know it. We must believe it. We must live it. We must speak it. And you see all that in Ephesians, like speaking the truth in love, like put off falsehood and speak the truth to one another. We need to be rooted and grounded in the truth. We need to be people of truth. We need to speak the truth. We need to think the truth. We need to live the truth. We combat the lies of the devil with the truth. So gird up your loins with the belt of truth. Next, he mentions the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. And the breastplate in the Roman armor, obviously, was that piece of armor that really went from the shoulders all the way down to the waist and covered that whole midsection where all your vital organs were. Um, and the word righteousness here, breastplate of righteousness, the word righteousness isn't used actually a whole lot in Ephesians. It's used more in some of Paul's other letters, but it's not used a whole lot in Ephesians. It shows up only two other times in the letter besides this place here. One is in Ephesians 4.24. The other is in Ephesians 5.9. Ephesians 4.24 and 5.9. And in both those cases, righteousness there refers to living uprightly and justly. And sometimes in Paul's writings, righteousness refers to God's righteousness, or it refers to the gift of righteousness that we've been given, this kind of positional righteousness as being put in the right, declared righteous uh, because of what God has done for us in Christ. But here in Ephesians, the other two times it's used, it's used to speak really of living righteously, living a righteous, upright, just sort of life. So we should probably understand it that way here. The breastplate of righteousness refers to uh, the breastplate of living a righteous life. Like, not a perfect life. Paul doesn't, you can be righteous without being perfect, but that's his point. Like, Overall, our life is righteous. We do what's right. We do what's fair. We do what's just. We act with integrity. We're upright. So the breastplate of righteousness. Next, he mentions the shoes of the gospel of peace, having shod your feet or put on the shoes of the gospel of peace. The gospel, as Paul has already described in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 and following, the gospel brings both peace between man and God, between us and God, and between us and other people, between people uh, and uh, each other, right? Like Paul described that in Ephesians chapter 2, that the gospel is this great work of peace that tears down the hostility between us and God and between us and other kinds of people. And so it is the good news, that's what the word gospel means, of the peace that Jesus won through his death and, re death and resurrection. And so we are putting on the shoes of this good news about the peace that Jesus' victory has brought to us in our relationship to God and in our relationship with people who are different from us in different backgrounds, the gospel of peace. Now, if I had to take a guess uh, as to the reason Paul associated the gospel with shoes here is because uh, of going places to tell people the gospel, like Paul himself does. He travels various places to uh, share the gospel. So he's got to put on his shoes to travel, to go places. And my guess is that's 
uh, probably why Paul associated with shoes here. In fact, that's the very picture in Isaiah 52 about the messenger who comes over the hills declaring the good news of peace. It says, how beautiful are the feet of him who uh, proclaims good news of peace, the good news that God wins there in, in Isaiah chapter 2. And so it's probably that imagery that uh, provokes Paul or leads Paul to associate the gospel with the shoes here. So the gospel is the gospel of peace, the shoes of the gospel of peace, as we go and declare the gospel in various places to people and, and do so to bring peace to them and peace between them and people. Next, he mentions the shield of faith. And notice how the shield of faith stands out a bit from the others in the list. He says, in addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith, right? And so it kind of stands out. Not only that, there's a little bit more description, description that actually identifies a specific purpose for the shield of faith. What's that purpose, he says? Well, it's to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And so the shield of faith gets a little bit more attention here just because of the description for it and the way it's set apart. And that makes sense. Uh, the shield was actually one of the most prominent pieces of a Roman soldier's equipment. It was usually fairly large, out in front of him, very important to his safety in battle, right? Kind of this large curved shield that protected his body from flaming arrows as here, or even sometimes uh, sword attacks and all of that. So very important piece of Roman equipment in the Roman uh, military and their armor. And so Paul brings that up here, sets that apart because it's really important for us as well. What's faith? Well, this is the shield of faith. So what is that? Well, faith is our confidence in God. That's essentially what faith means. Sometimes we over-spiritualize it. We, we take the word faith and turn it into a purely religious word, but it's, it was an everyday word. And what it meant was just confidence, confidence in God, and then thus the loyalty and allegiance that we have to him because of that confidence. And so faith is our confidence in and our loyalty to God, trusting him, trusting his promises. And faith is really an important subject in the letter to the Ephesians. We're saved by grace through faith, Ephesians chapter 2. We have access to God through faith, Paul tells us in Ephesians 3, verse 12. Christ dwells in our hearts through faith, Ephesians 3, 17. In fact, there's just one faith, and that one faith is part of the, the thing that unites us together as God's people from all these different backgrounds. And so faith is important here, and thus it's the shield that's going to protect us from all the flaming arrows that the enemy shoots at us. Whatever, whatever lies, whatever strategies, whatever attacks he places on us, we overcome those attacks because of our confidence in God and our loyalty to him. We trust in him. We trust that he's telling us the truth about the victory. We trust in his word to us, his promises to us, and we stand firm in that. And so we extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one by the shield of faith. Next, Paul mentions the helmet of salvation. Um, the helmet of salvation. Paul uses the very similar imagery in First uh, Thessalonians chapter five verse eight, which really clarifies, I think, what he means by the helmet of salvation here. There he says the helmet of the hope of salvation. The helmet of the hope of salvation in First Thessalonians five eight, and he probably means the same thing here. In other words, we're saved in hope, so we currently have salvation, but it's not finished and final yet. So we're saved in hope of ultimate salvation. 
And that hope is a helmet of protection for us. We don't need to live in fear of the powers. We don't need to live in fear of their attacks. We don't, there's nothing ultimately can harm us because we, we are saved in hope of ultimate salvation. We know the ultimate final day is coming when all the evil forces and all wickedness will be eliminated and that God will make all things new. And so we don't live in fear. We don't live worried about the powers. We have this great, grand, glorious hope and nothing can take that away from us. We're just awaiting for its full and final arrival. And so we live with the hope of salvation and that hope gives us courage and confidence. It's, it's a helmet of protection for our mind and for our thinking and we don't have to worry and be full of fear and anxiety and all of that in the midst of whatever comes our way in this world. And then the last piece of armor he mentions is really the only offensive piece of armor in the list, and that is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Um, and notice, again, this piece of armor is worded a little uniquely. The spirit is not the sword. And like, you know, righteousness is the breastplate. Salvation is the helmet. But here, the spirit is not the sword. Um, the spirit is the source, it seems, of the sword. He, the spirit, it's the sword of the spirit in the sense that the spirit has produced this sword and given this sword to people. So he's the source of the sword. And the sword itself is actually the word of God. Um, and the word of God probably, not 100% clear what it refers to, but probably refers to the message of God's victory in Jesus. The word for word here is actually rhema, which very often refers to like a spoken word. And that's not exclusively it in the Greek language, but often refers to that way. And probably in the context of Ephesians and the way Paul uses this word rhema elsewhere, probably refers to the declaration of God's victory in Jesus. So in that sense, the gospel, oftentimes we boil the gospel down to how you get saved. And that's not really how they used the word gospel in the ancient world among the preaching of the apostles. The gospel referred to what Jesus accomplished, the good news that Jesus won the victory, that he is king, that he laid down his life for us, and that he triumphed over all the spiritual powers, that he's been exalted far above every name that could be named, all these things that Paul has already said in Ephesians. That's the gospel. Jesus is king, and in him you can be freed then from your sins, and you can be freed from these spiritual powers and authority, and you can be protected. That's probably the word of God that we have here, is this message of what God has accomplished in Jesus and Jesus' kingship. The gospel is really what Paul has declared all throughout the letter to Ephesians. That is the word of God that is our great weapon in this, this victory that Jesus has achieved and our battle to stand firm. Now, as we walk down through that section of Ephesians, keep in mind the main point. The main point isn't we're going out into battle taking ground. No, we're standing firm. We have real powerful enemies arrayed against us. And even though oftentimes in sort of a Western context, we don't we don't really always, I think, have a full appreciation of the fact that there are real spiritual beings and spiritual powers that want to do harm to human beings. And we don't necessarily have a worldview where that stuff is appreciated. But other parts of the world have that far more fully than us. And in that sense, they're far more in keeping with the biblical worldview. Um, now, Paul doesn't go off 
all crazy speculating about all these different powers and all and he doesn't have a whole scheme of all these things we shouldn't either we should be as reserved and restrained in what we say about the spiritual powers as Paul and other New Testament writers are. Nevertheless, if we're going to have a full biblical worldview, we need to believe that there really are spiritual beings, spiritual powers that are arrayed against God and God's purposes and God's people. And those spiritual beings want to do harm. They are the devil's minions out to get us. Um, and the way we resist them and stand firm is by putting on the armor of God. And what you should pay attention to in the armor of God is the not the pieces of the armor per se, but the qualities that are associated with them. We stand firm against the forces of evil by truth, righteous living, the gospel that brings peace, faith in God and God's promises, the hope of salvation, and the message of Jesus' victory in Christ. That's how we stand firm against the forces of evil and the spiritual beings in this world. And so we need to be filled up with those things. We need our life to be rooted and grounded in those things so that we can resist in the evil day, as Paul says, and stand firm. And that's Paul's great rally cry to us at the end of this letter, in view of everything he said, in view of the victory that Jesus won, stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm on the basis of truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, hope of salvation, and the message of Jesus' great victory on our behalf.